What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. The moss haired girl. She see trees covered in black moss and made herself a wig. Maybe the hair in the tree was enchanted. <laughs> it's fun to think about. That's from the trailer for Bad Hair, which came to Hulu last weekend. The horror satire is about a weave that has a mind of its own. It's directed by Dear White People's Justin Simeon. We've got a review. A weave that has a mind of its own. In the biz, Adam, that's what we call a high concept. So this week's top five is high concept horror movies. That and more. Two bitter film critic rivals swap bodies. Chaos ensues. (laughs) Wouldn't mind being a little taller. Ahead on film spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. Josh, we grew up in the 80s. We were blessed with a lot of things, including the golden age of the high concept movie. Mm-hmm. But I know there are some people listening who are wondering what this phrase really means. We will certainly define it in more detail as we get into our top five here in a little bit. But our producer, Sam, has a good thought. If the premise of your movie is right there in the title, that's pretty much a dead giveaway that it's a high concept movie. Snakes on a plane. There you being go. Maybe the platonic ideal of yeah. a high concept movie, right? That's it right there. If all you got to do is tell someone the title and they understand everything the movie is about, it's probably using a high concept. Yeah. Snakes on a plane may be at times scary in its own way. Not exactly a horror movie. A longtime listener on Twitter, Charles Canzanieri, was following a similar line of thinking. He said, invasion of the body snatchers. Night of the Living Dead, The Fog. Those titles kind of say it all too, don't they, Josh? Yeah, well, as you said, we'll kind of get into exactly the way you and I at least defined this, but you could make an argument for those for sure. We will get to our picks here in a moment, but first we did want to spend a couple of minutes on the movie that inspired the list, Justin Simeon's new Bad Hair. So yeah, the bad hair of the title here is a bloodthirsty weave that the star of the movie, L. Lorraine's Anna, she unwittingly submits to as part of a plot, her attempts really to get ahead at this black entertainment network, sort of an MTV style network she works at. This is set in 1989, we should say. So she's been there a while. She's been overworked, underpaid, and largely ignored and, and sees a new look as perhaps a way forward. Now, Simeon directed 2014's Dear White People, and he created the TV spinoff, too. He takes the college set racial identity satire of that earlier film and amps it up here. Uh, Yes, there are some really gnarly murders, too. This definitely counts as a horror film. And he layers in some observations about assimilation and authenticity in that era, late 80s, early 90s. Let's hear a clip. Uh, Anna, who... Who does your hair? No one. Me? Aren't you tired of it? All the stares you get walking through the R&B lobby, everyone wondering why you're here. If you went to any other floor in this tower for a job interview, you wouldn't get past reception. And you know that. Sisters get fired for less than that every day. Now, Music people have certain expectations, and my girls need to flow freely. 
I wonder. You want to be one of my girls? Yes. That is L. Lorraine's Anna with Vanessa Williams as her CEO. Zora, Josh, you did like Dear White People, Justin Simeon's debut film, as you mentioned. In fact, nominated it for a golden brick here on Film Spotting back in 2014. What did you think of Bad Hair? I kind of loved it, actually. I mean, really? It's, yeah, it's it's pretty insane and, uh, you know, not a perfect film by any means. In some, in some ways, an experiment in genre for Simeon, you can tell, feeling his way and having some fun with the horror comedy elements here. But you know what I really wished, Adam, um, is that I, I mean, obviously nowadays we wish we can see anything with a full theater, but mm. this thing really would have benefited from a very loud, a very lively audience, um, preferably like maybe around midnight, something like that. I think then you could get into the vibe of the film a bit more easily than say, just, you know, watching it on Hulu at home, but I still had fun with it. I, I think, um, what Simeon does in terms of some of the extreme camera angles and the slow zooms there that are a little insidious. Um, mm-hmm. There's a great scene where Anna is at the salon getting about to get the weave and she's kind of walking through this hallway of hair samples that is probably going to haunt my dreams. I think not only the way it's filmed, but remember that old Seinfeld bit about like when you find hair in things, it's something about like if it's on our heads Everyone, you know, it's completely normal. Everyone loves it. But the minute it's removed from your head, everyone freaks out. That scene, like, totally captured that for me. Um, So, yeah, I think this works as horror. I think the main performance here is pretty strong by Lorraine. And I think there's a lot of fun comic performances going on along the edges here from people like Jay Farrow, Lena Waithe. James Vanderbeek, of all people, who's mm-hmm. totally doing a, you know, a Don Johnson, Miami Vice era performance. Um, I think the setting, the the 89 setting added a lot for me, just kind of remembering that. Yeah. I don't know if it's like Yo! MTV Raps. I'm sure there was a different countdown show around then. They capture the vibe of that really well, I think, here. Uh, even give mm-hmm. us a music video, an original music video um, with Kelly Rowland playing this pop star, the hip-hop star, who's kind of a mixture. I don't know. Tell me what you think. I was getting like a Janet Jackson slash Paul Abdul feel from that music video. So that was fun. There's yeah. a lot of fun stuff here. Yeah. I think Janet Jackson might be the best corollary. And of course, I am basing that on hearing Aisha Harris, friend of the show, who now is a host on the Pop Culture Happy Hour for NPR. She suggested that's who maybe Sandra is the best stand-in for. Okay. I am more mixed on bad hair, though. I'll tell you what I appreciated about it, and it definitely comes back to its high concept. And Josh, this week, between this conversation and some bonus content we did for our Patreon members, I'm really exposing my very small town, very white upbringing, but I don't think I had any understanding at all about African-American women and hair culture until I saw Good Hair in 2009, mm. that documentary starring Chris Rock. Yeah. It's it's a movie he decided to make after his three-year-old daughter, who had natural curly hair, asked him one day, Daddy, why don't I have good hair? I'd probably heard weaves mentioned in other movies, but I didn't really know what one was. I didn't know about the painful links a lot of black girls and women would go to to have straight hair. And that's the opening. (laughs) That really kind of terrifying. It should be wholesome and sweet. It becomes very terrifying opening of this movie. And 
I certainly didn't know that this thing I've taken for granted my whole life. We all have it. As you said, it's hair on our head. You know, maybe I've never been a big fan of my hairstyle. Wish I could have a better haircut. But otherwise, it doesn't occupy too much of my thought, Josh. I never thought about it signifying so much about who you are Mm -hmm. or who you want the world to think you are. And the weight of that every day, the shame of it, like Chris Rock's daughter, right? Three years old and already thinking that maybe she is less than in some way. And I think a lot of really good horror is rooted in shame, feelings about guilt, about past decisions or actions you can't undo or compromises you make. And that's definitely the case here with Anna, right? The thing that so many black women have felt obligated to get in order to get ahead, to feel like they are good and valued, is what here is controlling and hurting you. It's just such a potent metaphor, the killer weave, especially when you tie it back to, as Simeon does, slave lore and the subjugation and oppression of black people in America for, you know, at least a couple of centuries. Does the high concept pay off? Is the killer weave just the vehicle to give us something truly provocative or does it kind of take over the movie the way it takes over Anna's life? I think it's a little bit more for me, the latter, especially that third act in terms of it really kind of becoming about jump scares and campy hair attacks and different showdowns. It would be potentially great. I agree in a midnight movie type scenario where you could enjoy it with a crowd of people who are in a similar frame of mind sitting on my couch. I maybe didn't quite have the response that I should have. Yeah. Those scenes you're talking about near the end are the ones that definitely need an audience. I can see that. I I kind of agree with you there. I mean, he goes for it. He really Mm -hmm. doubles down on this actually being an entity that will and can kill. But as you're pointing out, you know, this is me too. This is like a cultural conversation. I'm completely watching from the outside, but am aware of in in addition to good hair, I'd also point out to last year's um, Oscar-winning animated short, uh, Hair Love, which is really good. That touches on this issue. But yeah, I'm I'm experiencing this through those sorts of um, films. But totally aware that this is an extremely hotly contested conversation that Simeon is stepping into with this movie. And it seems to me, you know, he has that one line later on he gives to a woman saying how, you know, in a perfect world, a woman could wear her hair however she wants to, something like that. So he kind of nods to the fact that, wants to nod to the fact that not trying to make a judgment either way. But the Mm -hmm. movie is, you know, look at its title And, and the very high concept of it is, seems to me to be very very pro-natural hair. And so Mm -hmm. it'll be interesting. I'm looking forward to now that I've seen it, hearing some of the conversations um, and reading some of the pieces on this that are really digging into the uh, the social commentary that is at the heart of this. And I think that's why, you know, I always like horror movies that are trying to do something like that in addition to the scares. And I think that's probably why I do value it is even though it's a conversation I'm not a part of, um, mm-hmm. it, it's it's really gutsy of Simeon to make a movie about it. And uh, yeah, I just want to see how it kind of goes over now that it's out there. Reinforcing what we're discussing here, right before I sat down to talk with you, Josh, I jumped on Twitter and I saw what was trending and Batwoman was trending. The day we're taping this here, we see the first photos of the new CW show featuring a black Batwoman, and the quote is, I believe this is from The Star, I felt it was important that viewers could tell by the silhouette that Batwoman was a black girl. 
with the form-fitting suit and beautiful afro, we mm. definitely nailed it, right? So, I mean, it just yeah. does tell you how crucial hair is to that conversation. And I think maybe the best line in the film, the one that really resonated with me the most, is a moment that a supporting character gets. Her name in the movie is Sista Soul. The actress is Yanni King Monshine, and she's being told she needs to change, that her show needs to change. It's suggested that maybe she needs to be a little less militant. And she says, you know how long it took me to get here? How many interviews I've had to walk into not knowing if they wanted Angela Davis or Diane Carroll or Queen Latifah Mm. or Claire Huxtable? I mean, think about it. She's mainly just talking about having to make a decision about how her hair looks, but that then reinforcing a certain type of black woman that could be good or bad, depending on what scenario she's walking into. And can you imagine, Josh, having to navigate those scenarios every day of your life? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. There's just like appearance carrying. I mean, appearance always carries weight in our, in our society, for sure. But here, like the added weight, the historical weight, the cultural weight, feeling like you ha- you're making a claim, taking a side, taking a political side. I mean, it's almost like something like wearing a mask is so political now. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is like doing your hair in a way that you might just want to express your own sensibility carries all these connotations with it. So I think, you know, I think this movie for as, um, as crazy as it gets and maybe silly it gets at times still, still has that layer going on underneath. And I think that's to its credit. Yeah, for sure. And I think maybe it's a matter of whether or not you thought there was a promise there of perhaps even more. And I was thinking about this movie maybe even as a counter to a rule you have that you bring up here on the show a lot about movies spending too much time on mythology, Mm. on establishing the rules and all the backstory. This is maybe one where, and definitely as I think about how the movie ultimately concludes, where I wish maybe some of the rules had been a little bit more clearly established and we really got into the whys of some of this versus just, as I said, devolving into a little bit of the campy horror that we get. But I'm with you, Josh, that I really appreciate the overall look here. This 1989, this L.A. is not the L.A. of anyone's dreams, certainly anyone who came out to become a big star on television. And the camera work insidious is a good word for it. It kind of creeps through those hallways. There's a lot of different angles used, including just low angle shots and high angle shots that nicely frame the characters in a way to designate who is in power in a situation. And almost every scene in this movie is about who has power or not. There's really a great use of confined spaces where from the very beginning, honestly, you feel trapped with these characters, whether they're in their little studio apartment or they're going in for a job interview. The walls are always closing in on Anna here. Yeah, there's that great 360 degree shot too, where Anna is being interviewed by Vanessa Williams, CEO. Um, and, And as we're passing around them and see the outer wall of her office, which is like frosted glass, you've got all those forms, those shadowy forms where Mm -hmm. we know it's just the coworkers, right? But they're given this sort of looming sense of a haunting image that works really well too. Something bad has happened. Oh, I'm aware. Mm. Wants to take over us. Look, I cannot die today, okay? I've been in church for like 15 years. Uh, hey, girl. Bad Hair is currently playing exclusively on Hulu. Agree or disagree with our takes? You can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. That brings us to our 
top five high concept horror movies. We talked a little bit about what that definition is, high concept. It is not, we can agree, Josh, highly conceptual movies. And I say that only because I did Google when I was looking for some titles, ultimate high concept movies. And what I got back were actually highly conceptual movies. It listed like 2001, A Space Odyssey, and Inception, and Upstream Color. Not what we're going for here. And the way you've described it in a few different places is the one that I think is probably the most succinct and the most accurate, which is if you can pitch the movie with a really easy premise, that's it. Yeah. So you gave the snakes on a plane example. Think here's another one. A possessed murderous doll goes on a rampage, right? What, what mm-hmm. are we talking about? Chucky. There you go. Chucky. That, that's a high concept movie. So yeah, I, I had people ask me on Twitter too, you and Sam and I were kind of talking if, if this is a generational phrase, maybe, maybe because some people didn't quite know what we meant. So I, I did say there that I would describe it as an often wild plot hook that can be summed up in a phrase. So when I was yeah. testing myself, it was that phrase thing where it's like, okay, I feel like this movie might count, but can I really sum it up that succinctly? Yeah. One that I thought of, even though ironically, I haven't seen the movie. It was a high concept that always really intrigued me, but not enough apparently to ever see the movie. And it's not a horror movie, though it maybe has a few elements. I think it's usually billed more as a thriller and even a sci-fi movie. The Richard Kelly movie, I think from 2009, The Box, press a button, get a million dollars, but a stranger dies. Oh, yeah. There I mean, you go. that's that's a high concept. And a listener on Twitter, Laura Hine, had another good example from a recent movie we discussed. A little bit harder to really get down to one sentence, but She Dies Tomorrow, mm. the Amy Simons film, is one. The official plot synopsis is a woman's conviction that she will die tomorrow spreads like a contagion through a town. So if you were trying to rephrase that, basically, you're afraid you're going to die. You tell someone they then catch it and it just passes on, right? And there is a nice high concept there as well. The cards were stacked against me as I approached this list, though. Josh, first of all, you do have to agree on a definition of horror, which is always hard. Mm -hmm. Is Alien a horror movie? Some would definitely say so. Is Solaris a horror movie? Maybe, maybe not. And then you have to decide whether or not a movie does fit into your scheme of high concept. And even if you and I agree on what the definition is, we might disagree on certain titles. For example, we talked a little bit about the Jordan Peele films. I think a case can be made absolutely that both Get Out and especially Us are high concept, but maybe not. I didn't come up with a convenient phrase for either one. So maybe that proves your point, Josh. Yeah, I couldn't either. And the more I thought about them, they're both very complicated. Um, partly is that's because both of them operate as a mystery in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is a lot going on there in both those films that really can't be summed up mm-hmm. in a phrase. So I set those two aside personally. Okay. I also, as longtime listeners know, don't typically watch a lot of horror because scary movies scare me. It's as simple as that. That really hasn't changed since I was a little kid. I will get to the solution I came up with, Josh, here in a moment, but I want to hear how you approach your list in your number five. Well, that reminds me, before we get into it, I forgot to ask you, when it came to bad hair, how'd you handle the eyes? Because one of the things here is like when when the weave starts getting crazy, the person's eyes go yeah. like kind of lizardy and and demonic, and I know that's a that's a bugaboo for you. So did that you make is it through the that? biggest bugaboo for me? <laughs> you know me well, Josh. But 
I managed. Okay. Good. I don't know what to say. Maybe I'm maturing. <laughs> Maybe I'm getting braver because I handled it just fine. Didn't even have to call Sarah in to sit by my side and hold my hand. Okay, good. I'm glad you survived. Um, all right. So, yeah, for my list, I did have to ask myself, so many horror movies can be high concept, right? So what distinguishes them beyond that and made them eligible for my list? Well, for me, it was where the high concept wasn't just a gimmick, but thematically and aesthetically woven into the film. And I think Bad Hair is a good example for the reasons we talked about. Um, it has those killer weave shots. Um, that's the aesthetics. But it also has that cultural commentary we talked about that gives it thematic weight. So I do think Bad Hair is a good example. I looked for movies like that. Um, and I'm going to start my picks here, Adam, with basically the phrase, the description of the high concept, the the pitch, and then listeners can try to guess the film. Maybe you can too, though I think you know yeah. the majority of my picks, but we'll see here. So number five, a malevolent spirit haunts a chat room. Now this one I've it's talked unfriended. about. There you go. I've talked about before on the show because it is one of my top 10 horror films of all time. I still think it's underrated from 2015. Uh, it's the horror movie for the digital age because it unfolds entirely on a laptop screen as a teenager is in this video chat with friends. They start talking. An anonymous caller joins the chat and starts kind of sort of being a troll, but then it gets um, a little creepier and starts circling around this guilty element from the friend's shared past. Hey, Mitch, who's your buddy? Who is that? I just tried to hang up on him. Can we get rid of this person? I don't know. Is this here the whole time? This is probably a glitch. Well, the glitch just typed. Who is doing this? This is Laura's account. Who would hack into a dead girl's account? Maybe it's Laura. All right, everyone, hands up right now. Who's doing this? Now, the movie Unfriended is only five years old, but it's already kind of dated in some ways. There have been other similar films since, and, you know, technology moves so quickly that everything looks different if you were to do this today on your laptop. But if you don't focus on the specific tools being used um, and kind of just think more about the idea of this haunted digital space, it completely still works for today's age. And I just think it's a, it's unnerving. And what makes the high concept work for me is the way the director here, Levan Gabriadza, makes every mundane digital task that we do every day, a hundred times, really terrifying. Things like the ellipses as you're waiting for a text. You know, we see that how many times a day? Here it's a threat. It has the specter of a threat. Or avatars where we're used to seeing people's faces. Well, when we see one that's blank as we do here, it kind of becomes a scary horror movie mask because we don't know who's behind that. And even something like the video buffering, it makes the other characters creepily pixelated and they kind of have this, this feel of digital ghosts. So this is also a triumph of editing. The editors here, Parker Laramie and Andrew Westman, again, they use everyday things and ring suspense by choosing which on-screen window are they going to maximize at just the right moment? Or or when is a notification alert going to pop up? How is that going to be essentially a jump scare? Um, the high concept is basically baked into the movie's very form, so it's not a gimmick at all. Uh, so Unfriended is my number five. Get on it, horror fans, if you haven't seen it yet. It really is one of my favorites. A perfect segue into my list because I have still yet to see Unfriended, and that's going to be 
a recurring theme here as we get into my list. I said I came up with a solution. Like a plucky horror movie protagonist, Josh, I approach this challenge needing to be resourceful and clever in order to survive. So what did I do? I devised my own high concept, and that high concept is host lets listeners do his top five. Oh, my goodness. So that resulted in the top five high concept horror movies I really want to see. And before you give me every pick is someone else's before you give me too much grief, (laughs) which I I fully expect. I will not be shamed here, though. It would be appropriate for this horror top five. I put a lot of work in and I believe that there are a lot of listeners out there, Josh, just like me looking for a nudge to see some of these titles or these kinds of titles. And we're going to battle the monsters together. So my number five is a found footage horror movie. I haven't seen many of those. I did a quick search before we started taping, found an IndieWire article, the 12 best found footage films ever. It came out almost exactly a year ago. The Blair Witch Project, which we both love, is of course on that list, the movie that started it all. And the only other one I had seen was Cloverfield, which, you know, is fine. Another movie on that list, though, was Wreck, a Spanish horror movie that was released in the United States in 2008. And like you, I tried to apply what that high concept phrase or what the phrases might be to each one of these picks. Wreck would be TV crew trapped with zombies or, and this really has a nice ring to it, cannibal apartment complex. <laughs> nice. I like that. <laughs> who, who doesn't want to see that? I found a listener via Twitter, Adam Lapish, who loves this film and has very high praise for it. Let's hear his thoughts. So when you announced you were doing a high-concept horror top five, my immediate thought was of the 2007 Spanish movie Wreck. This was remade in the US as Quarantine, but the original movie is the stronger one, and it follows a rather pedestrian TV series about uh, firefighters. It's a documentary crew who are filming, and they are called to a apartment building at reports of a, a woman screaming and, and trapped inside. And that's when things turn interesting. Uh, the crew try to escape after uh, an incident with the old lady, uh, only to find that the Spanish military have sealed off the building. And then what follows is what I think is a masterclass in building suspense and tension. It really does ratchet up the horror throughout the brief running time. And it's one of those horror movies where your heart rate is going to be elevated throughout And even if you're anything like me, when you leave the theatre, that might sound awful for some, but for me it was a great cinematic experience. Uh, But I imagine this plays just as well on the small screen at home in a dark room, but you may well want to bring a friend to watch it with you. Uh, It's a first-person horror, it's a found-footage horror. Maybe that genre has been overdone by now, but for me this is one of the best examples of that subgenre. It ticks all the right boxes it's, it's brief, it's exciting, it's certainly horrifying, and if you like your horror movies filled with tension, then Wreck from 2007 is a good choice. Thank you, Adam, for those thoughts. One of the things he mentioned there, Josh, was realistic behavior by the characters in a horror movie. It makes me think of the Geico commercial that I actually do get a little bit of a kick out of that's played nonstop over this past month, where 
it's four characters who are kind of the archetypes in a horror movie. And you hear the blonde actress say, why can't we just get in the running car? <laughs> Carrie Witta is the actress. It makes me laugh every time. Maybe this is truly an exception to that horror movie trope. But another aspect that appealed to me about Wreck that came out of that IndieWire article was they mentioned that it overcomes its tropes and kind of the limitations of those tropes with its energy and its execution. Certainly Adam also spoke to that, but they mentioned that it includes the absence of any music on the soundtrack until the very end. And it's hard to imagine any horror film without the music, right? Adding that tension, adding that extra layer of horror, that creepiness, bad hair definitely gets a lot of mileage yeah. out of its music. And this being a found footage movie, IndieWire suggests that it really does make it feel like you're watching a horrific document, which of course is the similar effect we got with the Blair Witch Project. Wreck is available on most platforms on demand. And another word Adam said, brief. It's only 78 minutes long. Sounds like an action-packed 78 minutes. But if you're looking for a quick fix, this Halloween wreck might be the choice. Well, Adam, it's it's kind of an open secret. We both will steal and use uh, listeners' picks for our top fives. That's why we put the topics out on um, on social media ahead of time. But this, you've gone too far, sir. I, I think you've broken film spotting. <laughs> I'll take it. Okay. I'll take it. You're number let's, four. Let's soldier on anyway. <laughs> All right. Number four. If you say a killer's name in the mirror five times, he'll appear. Now, that's not a... Well, if I say Candyman once, I'm I'm a fifth of the way there. <laughs> you got to be careful, I'm in trouble sir. now. That's not a novel concept, right? It's the Bloody Mary folktale is what that is drawn from. And But here's the, the catch is that a lot of folklore is high concept itself, right? Um, now, this idea got a gruesome twist with 1992's Candyman. This is where Virginia Madsen stars as a grad student researching an urban legend in the Chicago housing projects of Cabrini Green. It's about a murderer with a hook for a hand who, yes, appears if you say his name five times in a mirror. Now, I watched this for the first time, Adam, in the last month or so. Um, wanted to get ready for Nia DaCosta's. They're describing it as a spiritual sequel that was supposed to come out this fall, but of course has been pushed back to 2021. Well, 92's Candyman, which I remembered vaguely, I think I saw snippets of back then. Maybe I'm just thinking of the trailer. I didn't see the whole thing ever before because it is something I would have remembered. Um, basically, the movie is fascinating to watch many years removed because it's at once an exploitation and an interrogation of the racialized fears that were really prominent in the late 80s and early 90s, especially around Chicago. I don't know. I'll be interested to hear, Adam, if like your local newscasts in Iowa operated the same way or if you had to be closer to a, a large urban center for this. But we just got tons of sensationalized reports of urban crime, especially in neighborhoods like Cabrini Green, that essentially turned these into like boogie places for suburbanites. Um, mm -hmm. And you saw this every night on the local news. So I think Candyman in it's definitely exploiting that, but there are ways it interrogates it. And that makes it really interesting, even if it's not entirely successful. And basically the movie needs this concept, needs the black lens that DaCosta will provide. The director here, Bernard Rose, as well as Clive Barker, who wrote the short story that this is based on, they're both white British men. 
As high concept horror, though, um, it definitely delivers. Tony Todd plays Candyman. He's probably the best thing in the movie. When he appears, he has this regal, I think of it as almost a Universal Studios horror classicism to the performance. That's totally anachronistic, right? It doesn't fit the setting at all, um, but it's still mesmerizing. Tony Todd just has that presence and makes it work. Do I know you? No. No, but you doubted me. I'm sorry, I have to go. No need to leave yet. But I'm late. You are not content with the stories, so I was obliged to come. Be my victim. Be my victim. So, yeah, I'm really doubly excited for DaCosta's Candyman, and I do encourage people to catch up with the 1992 film in the meantime, um, because it is a fascinating artifact. Yeah, Candyman came out when I was still in high school. I worked at a movie theater, and one of the perks of working at the movie theater was on Thursday nights before the Friday release, the entire staff would get together and watch the movie. If it was a movie we wanted to watch, someone had to do it, right? If it was the owner or a manager, because you had to check the print for any scratches or any problems. And we would get together as a staff. And I remember watching Candyman and at some point, maybe halfway through the film, and maybe I've told this story on the show before, I needed to get a refill on my pop. And I went back into the, the closet behind the concession stand to get some ice. And the way the mirror was positioned you couldn't get ice without looking at yourself in the mirror. And I remember looking at it and just being like, you know what? Maybe I'm good without the ice. I'm just going to go and get my drink and I'm going to go sit down. I was unnerved enough that I didn't even want to look at myself in the mirror. That's the effect Candyman had. And it is a movie I definitely need to revisit. My number four is one that I don't know about you, Josh, because I don't think you've seen it, but listeners who are very familiar with this title will know it when I say simply these two words, demon cat or Jaws except a house. And that's how you know the movie House from 1977 truly is a high concept movie. The story behind it is that after Jaws was such a big hit internationally, this struggling movie studio, Toho Studios, went to this commercial director, Nobuhiko Obayashi, and said, we want you to make the Japanese equivalent of Jaws. And according to the LA Times, the resulting film bears no discernible resemblance to Jaws, though like the Steven Spielberg classic, it's surely some kind of benchmark for its genre if this freakish, garish spasm of surrealist psychedelic horror comedy can be said to belong to a genre at all. I don't think I'd even heard of this movie, I'm ashamed to admit, until a few years ago, I was hanging out with my friend, friend of the show, Sam Smith, in Nashville. And he said, oh, I'm designing the Criterion artwork for this horror movie house. So of course, Josh, I had to get Sam Smith to call in and tell us why this is such a great film. Hey guys, it's Sam Smith in Nashville, poster designer, poster boys, podcaster, soundtrack show, OST, all those good things. And one of the posters I designed was for my favorite horror movie, House, 1977, Nobuhiko Obayashi. That is 
maybe the best movie of all time. It's definitely the craziest movie of all time. And when you see it, you'll agree. My friend, film critic Jason Sean, described it as giving a group of teenage girls a truck full of Mountain Dew, a sheet of LSD, and a movie camera, and saying, go. Um, and sure enough, Obayashi wrote this story with his then uh, seven, eight-year-old daughter, Chigumi. So it's really from the mind of a child. It's a psychedelic kind of uh, fairy tale horror film. Um, and beyond all the surface level eye candy and just candy in general, the, the craziness of it, the, the evil cat, the uh, pop, people turning into bananas, the, the ways that Auntie devours the different girls as they come into her house, plus the great music, visuals, the collage techniques, and these kinds of things that Obayashi brings, it really, under the surface, is a profoundly beautiful and deep film about, well, lots loss, death, uh, the atomic bomb itself, as Kogonada really perfectly articulated in his video essay. You guys got to see that if you haven't. But there's a subtext here, um, not just about the atomic bomb, but about death and loss and our ancestors and how we step into the lives of those who came before us. It's really beautiful. And the ending in that context still leaves me completely confounded. I don't know what to make of it still, but every time I watch it, it's such a great time. House, one of the craziest movies you'll ever see, maybe the best movie ever. <laughs> Thanks a lot, guys. Enjoy, and I look forward to the show. Bye. Always appreciate Sam's contributions. Come on, Josh, giving a group of teenage girls a truck full of Mountain Dew, a sheet of LSD, and a movie camera, and saying go. Lost death and the atomic bomb. Are you not signing up for that? I've seen it. I like it. I'm a oh, fan. Oh, you have. I'm not, I'm not as big of a fan as Sam, but it sounds like maybe no one is. Yeah, <laughs> believe it or believe it or not, I probably saw this a couple of years ago, but I actually just watched that Koganata video essay this past week. Um, didn't know this was going to be on your list, and it is excellent making the connection that I never put together with the atomic bomb and, you know, the bombing specifically of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, um, that kind of haunts this movie. And, and, Mm -hmm. um, that, so Sam is totally dead on there as he is about the craziness. I mean, just the techniques at work here, you've got superimposed imagery, you've got fisheye lenses, freeze frames, fade outs, matte paintings, animated effects. They're all going on at the same time. And, you know, with bad hair giving us kind of keeping us in that 1980s music video mindset. It's almost like a music video that's developed its own consciousness and is becoming this entity um, that, that is murderous as well. So this thing is it's, it's bat shit house, Adam, this is bat Mm. shit house. Okay. Okay. Another good description there. Trick or Truth is the name of that Koganada video essay. It's only four minutes and 36 seconds long. Koganada, of course, the Golden Brick winning director of Columbus. And you don't want to watch that, as Sam suggested, until you've seen House. We will link to that in our show notes at filmspotting.net. But one video you can watch that ties us back to Sam, and it's available over at Criterion's website. I mentioned that he did the artwork, the great artwork that features that demon cat for the Criterion edition of House. And just a funny story, it was a print, a one-off kind of thing that Sam did just as a fan for the Belcourt Theater there in Nashville as part of a series they were doing that got the attention of the Criterion channel, and that ended up being turned into the Criterion art. And when that movie was released, Criterion did a five-minute video with Sam 
in his home studio where he talked all about his process. So I do encourage you to watch that as well, which we will put in our show notes at filmspotting.net. House is probably the only title, I could be wrong, Josh, on either of our lists that is a Criterion Collection movie. So you can watch it at criterionchannel.com, but it's also available to rent on Amazon Prime and over at Vudu. Well, no snakes on a plane yet. Maybe when we come back. That's also when we'll reveal the results of our Halloween-themed film spotting poll, Vampires versus Zombies. Stay with us. It is the year 10,191. In this time, the most precious substance in the universe is the spice melange. The spice extends life. The spice exists on only one planet in the entire universe. The planet is Arrakis, also known as Dune. The spice melange. Josh, at least I have my new band name. Yes. Mmm, spice melange. You know, any any meal, Adam, could be improved with spice yeah. melange. That's from the trailer for 1984's Dune, directed by the great David Lynch. It's a movie we're going to take a look at in a couple of weeks as part of our 8 from 84 series. One of the reasons, of course, we went with 1984 as our featured year was for the chance to visit, for both of us, Lynch's Dune. It's a movie that neither of us have seen. We were anticipating Denis Villeneuve's Dune, originally scheduled for a December 2020 release. As we sit right now, Josh, it has been pushed back to October 2021. I had not heard that. I knew it got pushed back, but till October? Uh, well, like Candyman, I think that's pushed back now till August of next year. So yeah, it's like mm -hmm. almost full year delays for some of these. Ugh. I know. A lot of you may be aware that Lynch's Dune was a bit of a fiasco. Lynch ended up disavowing the film after he was denied Final Cut. It did bomb with critics. And at the box office as well, it made only $30 million on a $40 million production budget. And it's that failure that is inspiring our new film spotting poll question. Which of these movie failures are you the biggest cheerleader for? This being a deeply flawed film spotting poll question overthought, as they all are, even the simplest ones, by our wonderful producer, Sam. He arrived at these options by establishing some very in-depth criteria. Yes. And that criteria is what, Josh? Well, first of all, I mean, I was going to say Sam put a lot of work into this, Adam, but if you want to just say he overthought it, I mean, okay, fine. Here's the criteria. As with Lynch's Dune, these options feature a high-profile auteur director taking on a high-profile existing property, 
and that combination creates a lot of high expectations. In addition to that, in the case of the options, we're going to give you those expectations were not met. In fact, far from it, all of these options failed both critically. Sam used a sub-55 Metacritic score as his guide. So that means mostly negative to mixed reviews. So they failed critically, but also failed financially. All right. Are you ready for the options? Here we go. Let's hear it. Brian De Palma's Bonfire of the Vanities, a 27 Metacritic score for that one. Wow. Lynch's Dune got a 40 Metacritic score. Steven Spielberg's Hook, that received a 52 score. Ang Lee's Hulk, 54 there. Andrew Stanton's John Carter. Remember that one, Adam? I think we reviewed mm-hmm. it on the show, if I'm we did. not mistaken. 51 Metacritic score. Tim Burton's Planet of the Apes, that received a 50. The Wachowskis' Speed Racer received a 37. And here's another option for you. Nope, they're all bad. So, Josh, how many of those have you seen and how many would you defend? Okay, so I have not seen Dune, as we established, and have not seen Bonfire of the Vanities. Hook, I'm sorry, 90s kids, you know, continue to be deluded about Spielberg's filmography. Hook's (laughs) not good. Hulk also, I I could not get past the special effects in that one. I'm sorry. A, A big angry avocado is what we got there with Hulk. Andrew Stanton's John Carter. Now, I'm a fan of that one. I will defend that. Will I defend it Mm -hmm. more than Tim Burton's Planet of the Apes? I'm sure you're shocked, Adam. Shocked to hear (laughs) that I gave that a positive review when it came out. So those are the two I would go with. Not surprised. I would love to be one of these hipster film people who sees Speed Racer as a masterpiece. I know. I know know that's where you're supposed to be at these days. I know. Maybe if I revisited it, I would see the light. Um, It certainly was something unique and sort of special in its own way, but I'm afraid I was not positive on it when it came out. So really, I can only say John Carter or Planet of the Apes. I'll probably I'll probably vote Planet of the Apes just just to annoy you. Well, it's working. Of course, like you haven't seen Dune or Bonfire of the Vanities. The other one I haven't seen is Tim Burton's Planet of the Apes, though. I have watched many scenes from it. One of those movies you see on HBO, you get a little bit interested because it's Tim Burton and it's Planet of the Apes. You think this has to be good. And then you watch about 20 minutes and think, no, I I have other things to do, like wash my hair. I'm going <laughs> to stop watching this movie. The you only mean, you one, mean then you get to a Mark Wahlberg scene? Yeah. There are two films here that I think are maybe a little underappreciated. And Andrew Stanton's John Carter is one of them. The other one, though, is Ang Lee's Hulk. I hear what you're saying, but after I saw it for a second time at that amazing theater down in Urbana-Champaign at Ebert Fest, and Ang Lee was there, and I saw it with a huge crowd, and everybody was really into it. Oh, sure. I I did succumb, Josh. I saw it as that really angsty family drama set aside the CGI and just really got into the family dynamics. And... Hulk mostly worked for me. So I'm not saying it's a masterpiece by any means, but of the films there, it's the one I would go to bat for the most. So you're saying Hulk works if the director is there in person. To, well, I didn't hang out with get, him later. To, I didn't have to look him in the eye or anything, Josh. Approval. Okay. All right. I'm easily swayed, obviously. In early voting, millennial nostalgia is giving Spielberg's Hook the lead, oh, followed gosh. by... Followed by Speed Racer. There it is, Josh. All those hipsters listening to film spotting. Uh Anthony Servo says, as a 90s kid, it might just be nostalgia. It's most definitely nostalgia. That is his own parenthetical. But I will fight anyone who says Hook is bad. Anthony, (laughs) you're going to have to get in line. I would love to tell you that Josh is off his rocker here, but I did confirm this. 
I checked out my ranking of Spielberg's films over at Letterboxd. 24 of them. I have five blind spots. And of those 24, Hook decidedly sits in dead last. So, sorry. It's not good. Let me see where I have it as you're saying that. um, I actually have a third to last, Adam. So, I I would say 1941 and The Lost World Jurassic Park are both worse, so... Well, I don't know what that tells you. <laughs> Those are two of the five I haven't seen. So in fairness to Hook, maybe I'd have it third as well. You can vote in that poll and possibly pick a fight with either of us while leaving a comment over at filmspotting.net. So we're going to get to that eight from 84 review of Dune in a couple of weeks, even though the remake has been shelved for now. Next week, however, we're going to do a fall slash winter movie preview. And as we'd like to do these previews, it will come in the form of a top five, five questions we have about the titles that are at least currently scheduled to come out between now and the end of the year. That's also when we're going to get to the segment that some listeners might be expecting for this show. We were trying to finish off our Overlooked Auteurs Marathon, but we're going to push that back one week. We will discuss Julie Dash's Daughters of the Dust, and we're going to get to our Marathon Awards. Do they have an official name yet, Adam? Well, you tell me over the weekend, I posted in Slack three options and it got nary a response from either you or Sam. So I took matters oh, into my own hands. I'm sorry. I went I went to the people. I know you were maybe watching football or spending time with your family or something no, like that. I, I was helping Sam with his uh, overthought poll. <laughs> okay. I went right to Twitter. I went right to the people and I threw out my three options. And of course, I'm open to others, Josh, but thinking about Jean Dielman, one of the standout films, surely, from this marathon, The Burnt Potatoes seemed like it was applicable. <laughs> I also thought about the details, that film being all about the details, of course, but also that being a key line yes. in the movie where Jean Dielman herself refers to making love to her husband as just a detail. Yes. Finally... We both really love Daisies, the Vera Chitlova film, that experimental or avant-garde movie. And I thought, you've got Marie 1, you've got Marie 2. We can all aspire to be, collectively, Marie 3. It's a little mm. clunky, but let's call them the Marie 3s. I threw that out on Twitter, and the burnt potatoes did run away with it. Apparently, everyone was hungry, Josh. I don't know. I kind of like the Marie 3s. Might have voted that way, but I think the burnt potatoes works. I think that all puts right. us... That puts us right back in the marathon for sure. We will put that on the menu for now as we look ahead to next week's show. That's when we will also play another round of Massacre Theater, the part of the show where we perform a scene from a movie and you get a chance at winning a film spotting T-shirt. In case you missed it, here's a bit of last week's Funny Voices Massacre. Well, what is that? Is is that dollars? Twelve hundred dollars? Well, this is a very reasonable price for a hack of this magnitude. Well, Adam, an email came in, and I didn't even realize it at the time. Apparently, with my accent, I said a very naughty word. Yeah, yeah. It it really changed the entire dynamic of the scene when you heard it that way. It did. I'm a little embarrassed, but, you know, what else is new when it comes to Massacre Theater? Not so much a family-friendly movie anymore. No, I'm afraid not. If you know what film we massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. The deadline's Monday, November 2nd. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries. We'll announce it on next week's show. 
Quick note again, Adam, want to remind listeners about this virtual seminar I'm doing with the Coolidge Corner Theater in Boston. I'm calling it the Royal Tenenbaums Family Tree, so I'm going to be revisiting one of Wes Anderson's best films. And basically, Coolidge Corner has been doing this for a couple of months now. The way it works is if you sign up, you'll get my video lecture in advance and watch that, watch the movie, and then we'll all get together for a Zoom Q&A on November 12th. I got to tell you, I've kind of gotten lost in doing this a little bit, Adam, as sort of a video essay. I haven't, I've always wanted to try one of these and this seemed like a good excuse to, to try my hand on it. It's really fun. I hope it comes together. So far, I'm pretty happy with it, Uh, but definitely it'll be fun. Just an excuse to talk about the Royal Tenenbaums again with fans of the movie. So we'll link to the details where you can sign up for that in the show notes. But November 12 is when that Zoom Q&A will be. A couple more plugs over on our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show. It's a bonus episode with Tasha Robinson doing a deep dive on one of her favorite films, Tarsum Sings The Fall from 2006. She's joined by Elliot Kalin from... The Flophouse podcast, great podcast, quick little bit of trivia. Elliot Kalin's younger brother, David, was once an employee of mine, Josh. Interesting. So we're like family, Elliot and I. Okay, how about that? You know, I would I would complain about Tasha trying to shove the fall into every conversation, except it's a really great movie. Have yeah, you it's a good s- film. It's so good. Yeah, uh, and undervalued, I think. So I'm glad it's getting, I'm glad Tasha is still out there spreading the good word. Tasha joined by Elliot, as we said on this episode, but usually joined by Scott Tobias, Keith Phipps and Genevieve Kosky. New episodes of The Next Picture Show post every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. And you can learn more at nextpictureshow.net. One way that you can support our show is to join the Film Spotting family over on Patreon for five bucks a month. You get ad-free episodes via a dedicated RSS feed, early show downloads, and monthly bonus episodes. We did just post October's earlier this week, Josh, formative political movies. I alluded to it earlier in the show. An alternate title Sam thought was maybe more appropriate, movies that taught us empathy. And I think that's accurate. Yeah, I think that's probably a common thread through all those titles we brought up for sure. Yeah. So if you are looking to avoid A lot of talk about elections and political strategy and Democrats and Republicans. Well, this is the political content for you, again, available to all of our family members over on Patreon. They also get access to our monthly trivia spotting events. Pretty soon, Josh, we are going to be known as the movie trivia guys who also occasionally do a podcast. (laughs) Should we just flip it? Should we do like weekly trivia nights and maybe a monthly podcast. What oh, do you man. think? Oh man, you do not have to twist my <laughs> arm. <laughs> you smiled way too big. <laughs> All the work is now on our quizmaster Thomas Todd. Yep. This is like going to Cancun. All right. Let's this suggestion, do it. Josh. I'm I'm all for it. Tickets for trivia spotting for we're calling it the Voyage Home are <laughs> sold out. So alas, you will have to join the family and try to get in line for December's event, but we are looking forward to that one. And we have a new patron goal. We've teased it a few times. We are inching closer, maybe about 30 away, Josh, from 1,000 patrons. Once we get there, we're going to do another virtual screening and our family members will get to choose what movie that is. Basically, a watch party over Zoom with me, you, Sam, and as many patrons who join us. You can also get an annual membership now. Instead of that $5 a month, save yourself one month's payment, get a 10% discount, and pay it all up front. We do like to spotlight some of our new family members, and this is one 
Josh, Cassie, Renee Pena, who took advantage of the annual membership and had some kind words for us. Hi, Film Spotting. It's Saturday morning, and I'm making oatmeal and Turkish coffee and enjoying this week's episode. I've been listening to Film Spotting off and on since the pre-Josh days of 2009, but this is the first time I've been in a financially secure enough place to make regular contributions. I've loved movies since I was a child. My mom had my sister and I watching 40s, 50s movie musicals back when AMC was only classic films, and I used to secretly wait up till 1 a.m. to watch Charlie Chaplin films on cable. I was eight. When I found your show with two movie snobs who are not pretentious, discussing insightful and sometimes even spiritual avenues into cinema, thank you, Josh, I found a place that spoke to everything I love about films. I've recently started my own radio show about film scores and soundtracks on a friend's public access radio station, and I credit Film Spotting for inspiring me to do this. I'm excited to finally contribute to something I've loved for so long, be an official member of the Film Spotting family, and hopefully get to take part in some film spotting trivia. I think Cassie is one of the participants for trivia spotting for The Voyage Home. Josh, we look forward to seeing her on that call. Wish her the best of luck in her radio endeavor. And if you would like to be a family member like Cassie, you can sign up now at patreon.com slash film spotting. You can win like t-shirts and um, hats and spot prices. I can smell werewolves. We were just about to walk past a werewolf, so some shit might go down. Look out, guys. Don't catch fleas. I love any excuse to get a clip in from what we do in the shadows, a little vampires versus werewolves action there from that 2014 film. We went with a slightly different matchup for our movie monster deathmatch poll that we posted on filmspotting.net a couple weeks back. Vampires versus zombies. That's it. You can only have one set of movies. Is it vampire movies or zombie movies? And Josh, it does seem that all of our lobbying for zombie films paid off. It got closer, but those zombies just always a little bit behind, it seems. Sorely disappointed by these results, Adam. I can't imagine the last time, can't remember the last time I've been so distressed by the results of a film spotting poll. Vampires, 52%. Zombies, 48 Well, let's see if you'll buy any of these listener explanations. Brett Lambert Zafino says... Vampire movies. You've got two silent masterpieces, Murnau's Nosferatu, Dreyer's Vampire, two sexy masterpieces, The Hunger, Only Lovers Left Alive, two 80s quotables, Near Dark, The Lost Boys, a European classic, Let the Right One In, What We Do in the Shadows, Bella Lugosi, Gary Oldman, and Wesley Snipes. Zombies peaked with that cranberry song. <laughs> nice, Brett. Uh, Ouch. Well, he has a point. I, I don't think there is a sexy zombie movie and and adam i've seen zombie strippers so <laughs> he may okay. be he may be onto something there here's your jonathan. credentials are intact yes here's jonathan anderson in denver i mean whatever wins we lose because there are classic films on both sides but in the end i can't lose george romero's first four dead movies it has to be zombies Sound argument. Sarah Welch Larson says vampires are so much more idiosyncratic than zombies. Are you going to have her back on your other podcast, oh Josh? She's going to say things like believe, this. I can't believe this. Zombies seem to be able to channel only one cultural anxiety at a time communism, consumerism, ennui, far right extremism, or whatever, depending on the decade. Vampires tend to keep their personalities and individuality after their undeaths, and their themes and ideas follow suit. They could be about love, loss, loneliness, anxiety, race, class, or just a bloody good time. Since most vampire movies are about individuals and more or less individual stakes, I mean, she didn't even say 
no pun intended there. So we have to throw this whole thing out. <laughs> I find them a lot more interesting than the general mass extinction stories that zombie movies tend to revert to. Ah, <sighs> well, Sarah, see, this is why I like to talk to Sarah. She makes a lot of good points there. Here's Jill Adamson. To me, it comes down to Vampire's Kiss versus Romero's Dawn of the Dead. Even with Nicolas Cage's totally committed insanity in one of his best ever performances as a psychotic money-sucking vampire in Vampire's Kiss, Dawn of the Dead wins. The mood, the music, the impending doom make for a brilliant film that sets the bar for all zombie films. Allison Hale says a world without what we do in the shadows is just not something I can contemplate. That would be sad, Allison. One more note here from Chris George. Zombies. Though I think we missed a chance to call this an undeath match. Well played, Chris. Is that a pun? You can, eh, yeah, mm. I mean, play on words. I don't like it six, either way. Six, one half dozen of the other. You can vote in the current film spotting poll, movie failures that you champion at filmspotting.net. It's a wolf. Or maybe it's a werewolf. No, let me just make this perfectly clear. There is no such thing as werewolves. Our killer is a guy, and I'm going to find him, and I'm going to kill and we're going to bring him to justice. We have every reason to believe that this monster will show up again tonight. Before we get back into the top five with our top three high-concept horror movies, Adam, you have a quick recommendation for another Halloween-friendly movie, The Wolf of Snow Hollow. He just heard a bit of the trailer there. The Wolf of Snow Hollow, the second film from director Jim Cummings. His Thunder Road, that was a Golden Brick nominee a couple years ago now, not last year, huh? I've kind of lost no, track of time. 2018. 2018. Yeah. Okay, that was Thunder Road. Here, the Wolf of Snow Hollow is set in a small mountain town that experiences a rash of murders every full moon. What could that be? Adam, how did you like this? I liked it a lot, and it doesn't fit within our scheme this week as a high-concept horror movie, though if I had to fit it in, Josh, the best quick description I could give it. It's totally flawed, but you could call it werewolf insomnia. Mm, okay, I'm intrigued. Go on. Just because of that snowy mountain, small town setting, you've got a police officer who definitely is unraveling over the course of the movie, and there is a killer on the loose. So it made me think about that recent film that we talked about as part of our Christopher Nolan overview. And as you said, Jim Cummings, the writer, director, and star here, like he was in Thunder Road, was a Golden Brick nominee for Thunder Road. That gave me my favorite opening scene of 2018, that unforgettable 13-minute single long take, Cummings as a police officer, eulogizing his mother in the most awkward, embarrassing, hilarious, and kind of moving way imaginable. And Cummings doesn't try to recreate that exact bit of magic in Snow Hollow, though the first scene featuring him, it comes about 10 minutes into the movie, did immediately put me back in that amazing, uncomfortable place. He's a cop, again, giving a speech again, except this time it's at an AA meeting and it's interrupted early on. But he explains, Josh, that he has anger issues and he mentions his ex-wife and he says, She's the mother of my daughter. I could never say a cross word against her, but she can be a real effing piece of work. Some nights I get so angry even just thinking about it. I get these crazy ideas about renting a backhoe, setting it up on her lawn, putting it in drive, and just watching it crawl through her house slowly. 
<laughs> and I can barely get that out and I'm dying. I was definitely dying while watching the movie. And you also get his brand of physical comedy, too. There's a scene late in the movie where he has to dump milk onto his face because he's just been pepper sprayed. And all I could think was, is there anybody else right now who makes me laugh this much at those kind of physical antics or just at line readings than Jim Cummings through these two movies. I'll watch anything this guy makes. As I said, it takes place in a small mountain town. Women's mutilated bodies are turning up on nights where there's a full moon. Is it a serial killer pretending to be a wolf or could it actually be a werewolf? That's the central mystery for a good chunk of its running time. And like that character he played in Thunder Road, Jim, he plays John here. He's just trying, Josh, so hard to keep it together, to be in control, to be an authority figure, to be a man, really, and also to be a father as well as a son because he's in the shadow of his sheriff father who was played by the late Robert Forster in what I think was his final film role. And Part of the stress that he's dealing with is that his dad is clearly having serious health issues and just won't take it seriously, won't get checked. So that's just piling on the angst. And as I said, he is dealing with an alcohol problem as well. The movie is really funny. It's less cringe based than Thunder Road. And it's certainly darker because as with most horror movies, the monster does represent something else. It represents here addiction. It also represents toxic masculinity. It's a movie that's got a lot on its mind. I definitely recommend it, especially here for Halloween. It's in theaters, and it's also available on demand on various platforms, including Vudu, Google Play, iTunes, and Amazon. All right. I've got a couple of days yet before Halloween, so I'll try to fit it in uh, in the spirit of the season. Sounds pretty good. From that werewolf talk, we get back into this week's top five high-concept horror movies. I'm playing the role of curator more than critic. I've compiled five high-concept horror movies I actually can't wait to see and really regret that I didn't catch up with earlier listeners playing a key role for me in this. Josh, you've done all your homework. You've seen all these movies. What's your number three? All right. Here's the high-concept phrase for my number three. A vegetarian vet student develops an insatiable desire for meat. I've seen this one raw. This is raw. I can't believe you sat through raw, Adam. I mean, this is a wild one. It comes from French director Julia Ducarneau. I talked about it before because it made my 2017 top 10 list. Now, once you know that setup, for this, that that high concept, you basically just watch the movie with dread as the waif-like Justine, played by Garance Marier, you watch to see how far her desire for meat is going to go. You have a pretty good idea where you're going to end up, but you're always kind of hoping it's not going to go that far. Sure enough, a rabbit kidney that she's forced to eat as part of a hazing ritual early on, that leads to a raw chicken breast, which leads to... I'm just going to let listeners discover if they have the stomach for it. You could probably say Raw is sort of a zombie movie, except that Justine is very much an active participant. So maybe it's a werewolf movie. Maybe it's a vampire variation. One of the things I like about it is that the metaphorical possibilities here are equally varied. In the years that this has come out, I've seen so many interpretations about what the underlying ideas are at play here. And I think there's a there's a reveal, kind of a twist at the climax that adds all sorts of other possibilities. For me, basically, especially as Justine indulges in plenty of other impulses, drugs, sex, 
it's mostly about the ravenous human appetite and, and just our difficulty controlling it. Duke or no, she has an immersive camera and also what I like about this, a black comic touch that's probably necessary for this kind of story. There's a great music drop at one moment, a particularly crazy moment that got a big laugh for me. She just takes this high concept, really runs with it. So if you want a queasy Halloween, I suggest you watch Raw. Black comic touch probably applies pretty well based on what I know about it to my number three, a little less ambiguity or nuance maybe to this pick, Josh, the high concept phrase I would use is simply vagina has teeth. And that movie, of course, is teeth. (laughs) The 2007 film from Mitchell Lichtenstein, Bianca Soto, a longtime listener from Queens, New York, doing the honors with this pick. Hello, Adam and Josh Bianca from Queens here with a high concept horror pick for you. As soon as you mentioned this topic, I instantly thought of 2008's Teeth, where the bizarre vagina dentata folklore is used as a metaphor for everything from puberty, consent, and fear to catharsis, empowerment, and, well, murder. It's over the top, but I think that's what makes it accessible to both horror and comedy, and Teeth executes both genres really quite well. For instance, one moment you'll be enduring a really, truly horrific occurrence of sexual assault, and then the next thing you know, it turns to a laugh-out-loud slapstick comedy. It really shouldn't work, but it totally does. In watching Teeth, you also can't help but notice the similarities to Brian De Palma's Carrie, which I'm sure was a huge inspiration on the film. While Carrie as a film is far more subtle, the trajectories are the same. Dawn, in teeth, just like Carrie, is pure and devoted to her strict beliefs in a less oppressed manner, but nonetheless, they are strict. Starting out by being baffled and terrified of her newfound powers, let's say, they eventually learn to harness them and take control as necessary. There is something inside of me that's lethal. Dentata. What? It's Latin for teeth. It's what's inside me. Are you afraid? This is too weird. Just wait. So, that is my contribution for a top five high-concept horror film. Can't wait to hear your list, guys. Bye. So just doing some quick Googling, Josh, this movie cost $2 million to make, grossed about $2.3 million, but only about 350000 of that domestically. What if Teeth had come out in 2017, when Me Too is exploding on social media and in our culture, instead of back in 2007? Hmm. How much more successful might this movie have been? And for me, and for probably a lot of viewers, it took horror movies commenting on horror movies to confront the genre's gender roles and the way women are treated in particular, right? Screams rules, can't have sex. And you think about the slasher picks where the teenage boys might get killed too, but it's definitely the sinning girl who is going to get it. And you get a movie like Cabin in the Woods, which spells it out. The whore, she's corrupted, she dies first. Who lives or who gets to die last? The final girl, the virgin. You really can't talk about horror without talking about the female body. And Bianca mentioned Carrie. What's the inciting incident of that film? She has her first period in the showers at school. 
on Wikipedia, they have a page for gender in horror films with a section titled Female Roles in Horror Films. They talk about women and the female body as monsters, citing one writer and professor who has this take on Carrie. Shelley Stamp Lindsay writes, Carrie is not about liberation from sexual repression, but about the failure of repression to contain the monsters feminine. So that reading basically says that Carrie, the Brian De Palma film, is telling its audience that you have to live in a patriarchal world and basically have to do whatever you can to integrate into it. If you don't, then this is what's going to become of you. Now, that is just one or two sentences with no additional context. But if the shoe fits De Palma, right? And one of the things I will be curious to watch when I do see this movie, Teeth, a movie also directed by a man that literally turns a teenage girl's body into a monster, right? Is if the flip is truly, as Bianca suggests, in the service of empowerment or not based on Bianca's recommendation, I'm going to trust that it is. I am with Bianca. I've seen Teeth. Uh, I I like Teeth. I think she's really onto something here. And it's certainly a great example of a high concept horror movie. Your phrase, Adam, vagina has teeth, much better, more succinct than mine, which was a proudly virginal high schooler discovers she has teeth. Well, where there shouldn't be any, but we all get the idea, right? Yeah. Um, That's a really interesting question. What if this had come out during Me Too? Because it it reminds me that one of the reservations I had about it, I think it is working on the levels that Bianca is talking about, but I do wish that the writer-director here, Mitchell Lichtenstein... He almost gets distracted and sidetracked by focusing on the the men who become the victims of Dawn, the main character here, played by Jess Wexler. Um, and it becomes more about them in a way that was a little bit disappointing because you want it to be more about her experience and what this meant for her. Um, but still, just the idea itself does hold a lot of resonance that is absolutely there. I also think it's an interesting comparison to, uh, to Bad Hair because in – Dawn, you have the same sort of transition that Anna makes, played by Elle Lorraine, from this naive innocent, in a way, to a vengeful but also cursed woman. Um, hmm. So they have that in common. And yeah, for sure. it's an un- This is an insane idea that, like bad hair, I think is mined for both body horror and comic social critique. So Teeth is another one. If you think you can stomach it, definitely check out. Well, like bad hair as well, it's one that's rooted in folklore. This is one of those yeah, myths, right, right sure. that the movie is is tapping into. Teeth is available to watch for free if you have an Amazon Prime subscription. So Teeth is your number two, Josh. Mine is a film that I can sum up in three words. Slasher Groundhog Day. Mm, it's uh, happy, happy Death, death day. day. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. From 2017, a movie about a college student who basically has to relive the day of her murder again and again in search of ultimately her killer's identity. Keith B in Seattle is going to tell us why Happy Death Day is such a good horror film. When I heard the top five were going to be high concept horror movies, the first movie that sprung to mind was Happy Death Day. When the pitch was clarified as being explainable in one line, that clinched it. And that line is, the heroine is being chased by a mass killer, but in a time loop. The lead character, Tree, wakes up in an acquaintance's dorm room every day, has a variety of experiences, and meets her fate at the hands of a slasher. This format, clearly drawing from Groundhog Day and Edge of Tomorrow, lets filmmakers get in references aping classic scenes like Phil Connors hating I Got You Babe, the second acts of apathy all three movies have, and Groundhog Day's speedrun of goodwill, 
The gimmick of Happy Death Day lets Tree essentially play a whole sorority worth of slasher victims, with a character deserving of those deaths. Assuming that I believe any of this is even possible. Sprinklers. Car alarm. The way I see it, you have unlimited amount of lives. Unlimited opportunities to solve your own murder. So I'm supposed to keep dying until I figure out who my killer is? You want to live to see tomorrow, right? The movie has two extra benefits. It sells itself to time loop fans who aren't into horror movies. And also, the PG-13 rating basically eliminates the majority of gore, selling it to people who might be squeamish. I think it's a great flick with a pretty great sequel, and that's why I choose it for my high-concept horror movie. Thanks, guys. Take care. Thank you, Keith, for that. Josh, you know how I love my meta movies, and as described there by Keith, this is a slasher flick that is definitely playing with all of the conventions of slasher flicks. Shades of Groundhog Day and Edge of Tomorrow, I dig both of those movies. And how about that? PG-13, no gore. I have been hoping throughout this list, Josh, that my eagerness to see these movies has endeared me to horror fans listening. And I realized by saying that, by being excited by the absence of gore, I probably just undid all of that. But look, I am a little bit or a lot squeamish. If a horror movie isn't ruining some part of everyday life for me forever, it's probably seriously grossing me out. And here we have no gross out. It appeals to the film geek in me. And it might actually be a horror movie that makes you think about death and not just watch a lot of it. I'm totally in. Need to catch up with Happy Death Day. And apparently the sequel is pretty good too. That came out in 2019. Both films are available on most platforms for rental. Well, Adam, you just lost the Fangoria demographic. Thanks a lot. I know. Sorry. What's your number one? My number one, Birds Go Bonkers. The birds. I mean, leave it leave it to Hitchcock, Hitchcock to pull off the highest of high concepts, right? I pretty much rank these not so much on which movie I like the most or gave the highest rating to, but kind of the height of the concepts. And there's just a purity and a simplicity to the pitch that is The Birds. I think this is probably Hitchcock's highest concept movie. I mean, maybe you could say Rope with its single take format, but uh, to me, it's this. Not one of his most respective. We saw this recently, right, Adam? Because we had a contest that asked listeners to choose their favorite among Psycho, Rear Window, Vertigo, and the Birds. Birds got the least votes. And that's fair. I Among that group, I'd probably agree. But I still love this movie because it starts with this bonkers idea and just keeps ratcheting it up. I also think... And I think I've talked about this at one point for a top five on the show before. I can't remember which. But there is a feminist reading here involving Tippi Hedren's Melanie Daniels. And that kind of makes the oft-maligned performance she gives pretty interesting to me. But in terms of the high concept, it's all about the sound design. That's where the formal aesthetic achievement of the birds is. This cacophony of squawks and, and flapping that you get over the opening credits Throughout the whole thing, there's an incessant tapping or screeching or chirping or fluttering. And sometimes you get this even when there are no birds present on the screen. And then Hitchcock drops the silence. Like there'll be moments where everything's taken away. And what do you do? You just, you tense up in a different way. It's like different muscles start to tense from the ones that were tense before. So I do think this is pretty scary and kind of creepy. Um, 
it's this audible portrait of nature gone berserk. And I think that resonates with the thematic suggestion that Melanie Daniels, by asserting herself so strongly, is also unnatural. Um, So basically, the bird's better than its reputation. I'm hoping I might be able to see it again on Halloween because my sister was talking about in lieu of trick-or-treating this year, maybe projecting it in their backyard on a screen for the little kids. You know, that sounds very inappropriate to me, which means I'm all in. I'm all in. Hopefully that's how I'm going to be spending Halloween. We'll see. Sounds like wicked fun, Josh. (laughs) I think that's a grand approach. I want to hear how that goes. My number one high concept horror movie I really want to see is one I could describe this way. Zombie virus transmitted via English language, or we've gone from slasher groundhog day. My number two to zombie radio clerks. The movie (laughs) is Pontypool. From 2009, a Canadian film directed by Bruce McDonald, and this recommendation came via listener Warner West. Let's hear what he has to say. Hey guys, this is Warner from Oklahoma City calling in about Pontypool. When I heard there was a new top five about high-concept horror films, Pontypool was the one that came to mind immediately. It was recommended to me by a friend as the perfect quarantine film, and it lives up to that claim as it's a zombie film that takes place in only one location in only one day. Unlike the zombie films of Sam Raimi or George Romero, this disease isn't spreading through zombie spit or through toxic air, but through an idea instead. The infection becomes tied to the ideas behind words, or in linguistic terms, the signified. The only cure to this incepted idea is to dissociate the meaning from the word. It's definitely a thinker for what has historically been a genre for popcorn flicks only. For your safety. Please avoid contact with family members and restrain from the following. All terms of endearment for greater safety. Do not translate this message. Not translate. If you end up watching this over the next few weeks, be sure to stay through the credits for one of the most baffling post-credit scenes I've ever encountered. Thanks, guys. Now, as you know, I was an English major, didn't get too much exposure to semiotics or linguistics. This might actually be too much of a thinker zombie movie for me, Josh, but it being a zombie movie, of course, with Pontypool, there has to be a larger metaphor at play. Stephen Holden, in his mostly positive New York Times review, wrote Pontypool barely develops a premise that has all kinds of implications about the mass media, talk radio in particular, and the degradation of language in a culture overrun with hyperbole, jargon, disinformation, and contrived drama. So, like teeth, this is another one where I was thinking. How would Pontypool connect in 2019, where you've got a media landscape dominated by quote-unquote fake news and TikTok and Twitter versus 2009 when social media was really just beginning its kind of cultural domination? It did resonate with listeners at the time. I remember, and I went through the archive to find some of these takes. Randall Yelverton wrote, Imagine a horror film scripted by Noam Chomsky. Now, I don't know if anyone asked for that, Josh, and maybe that will actually scare a few people away from Pontypool, or who knows, maybe they'll come running towards it. Also, back 
in 2009 when it came out, we got an email from a listener you know, someone else who contributes to another podcast that you are part of, Abby Olchesi. Oh, yeah. She was just back in Lawrence, Kansas at the time. Certainly, you know, wasn't on Rotten Tomatoes or appearing on other shows or in print online as she is now. She wrote in and said, this last month I was studying abroad in England and Scotland while I was in Edinburgh. I had the great opportunity to see a screening of Pontypool. I know Maddie had mentioned he was interested in seeing this movie and I wondered if he'd got the chance to see it yet. I thought it was fantastic. Probably the best new take on the zombie genre since 28 Days Later. It's really clever, funny, and surprisingly light on the gore, which I thought was kind of refreshing. If you guys do get to see it and like it, I think it might be a good contender for a film spot in Golden Brick. Just a thought. So that was from Abby way back in 2009. Nice. Josh, and what can I say? We didn't listen, Abby. We apologize. I think Maddie did eventually catch up with it and really liked it. I did not see it at the time. Alas, did not get that Golden Brick nomination. And the timing has probably expired on that. But that doesn't mean I'm not finally going to see Pontypool, the number one high concept horror movie. I can't wait to see. Yeah, me too. This one, not on my radar. And I, like you, Adam, I did avoid the linguistics requirement for my English major. So I don't know if I'd be able to handle it, but it sounds pretty interesting. It is available on iTunes and Apple TV. And if you missed any of our picks, we will list all of these high concept horror movies over at filmspotting.net. Just click on lists at the top of the page. Of course, we'd love to hear your choices or any other comments about the show. Email us feedback at filmspotting.net. Josh, that is our show. That's the show. If you want to, you know, provide Adam with his entire next top five list, you can find us on social media. Adam is at Film Spotting on Facebook and Twitter. We could talk to I'm at Larson on Film. In the show archives at filmspotting.net, you can find reviews, interviews, and top fives going back to 2005. And you can also vote in the current Film Spotting poll, which movie failure, and don't argue with us about what that means, which movie failure do you champion? To order show t-shirts or other merch, visit filmspotting.net slash shop. And you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter at filmspotting.net slash newsletter. Out in limited release this weekend, come play. High concept horror alert. A lonely boy unleashes a sinister creature via his ever-present cell phone and tablet. Sounds like a companion piece to Unfriended. Josh, you'll love it. Mm, maybe. Gillian Jacobs and John Gallagher Jr. star on digital, The Craft Legacy, a follow-up to the 1996 cult film about teenage witches directed by Zoe Lister-Jones, who made Band-Aid. That's on Amazon Prime. Golden brick alert for this one, His House, a well-reviewed directing debut about a young refugee couple from South Sudan trying to adjust to their new lives in a small English town. Wait for it. We're evil lurks beneath the surface Mm -hmm. it's on netflix next week on the show it is our fall slash winter movie preview we'll close out our overlooked auteurs marathon with julie dash's daughters of the dust and we'll share the burnt potatoes (laughs) our terrible our terrible (laughs) dinner option there The Marathon Awards. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Kat Sullivan. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. Our music this week is from Toronto's Pup. Comes from the album Morbid Stuff. More information is at PupTheBand.com. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. 
This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.